Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my podcast, who are my executive producers, Candace Sanderson, author of Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. I- Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Cleansing Protection Magic. Senior editor Amanda Steele, author of Ghosts of Me, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are <laughs> interested in becoming a contributor to this podcast, go to everythingimaginable2020.com and you can find a whole bunch of information there on how you can contribute. And now, without further ado, my guest for today is Rosemary Ringer. How are you, Rosemary? I'm fine. A, a little wee minor correction. I go by Rosemary Thornton, but other than that, oh. uh, it's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry about the wrong name. That's okay. <clears throat> but um, hi, it's nice to be back on your show. It's great to have you back. Um, so what have you been up to since uh, the last time you died? <laughs> Working indefatigably to finish up my book. Uh, there's a famous old sports writer, interestingly. I can't remember his name, read something. He said, writing is easy. Just open a vein and bleed. And I love that quote because, uh, you know, way back in the day, it's been three years now since I visited heaven. And several people said even way back then, oh, you should write a book, write a book, write a book. And I thought, nope, I've written nine. I know what it's like. Uh, not doing it again. But yeah, writing is awfully hard. Indeed, it or maybe is. I'm just not that good a writer because I think uh, it's really hard. <laughs> I think it's really hard too, honestly, because you know it's been a while. Like I said, I mentioned earlier before we got on the show, I, it's been about seven years since I wrote my one book, and you know I'm always thinking like, oh, well, I really should do another one because I have this podcast and all this other stuff to write about, but I don't want to do all that work. Oh, my goodness. It's miserable because it's not just the writing. Writing is certainly hard enough. I actually wrote this manuscript three times. I mean, you know, wrote it once, looked at it, and eh, that's not right. Wrote it again, looked at it, and eh, still not right. And, and I mean, each time, complete fresh slate. I didn't save anything from the old work. And then the third time I wrote it, and now I've spent over a year rewriting, editing, adjusting, fidgeting, fooling around with it, trying to get it just right. So, you know, do I need that word or this word? And then I actually sent it off to be formatted, and when it came back, I realized it still wasn't right, so I made a bunch of new changes, and then I sent it off again to the formatter. So, yeah, it's been extraordinarily intense, far more so than it should have been. I mean, my other nine books are on architectural history, so this is a pretty significant shift in genre to go from architectural history to writing about, you know, dying and visiting heaven. Yeah, yeah I can totally understand that. Um, you know, I went through the same process. It took me six months to write my book, and then it took me a year to edit it. Oh, my god! And gosh. by the time I was done editing it, it was about half the size of the original. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's a famous quote attributed to a whole slew of writers from Winston Churchill to Mark Twain. But it says simply, if I had had more time, I would have written you a shorter letter. Mm-hmm. 
And that's true. Editing, and that's part of what what's got me is I every time this thing comes back from formatting or an edit, I read it again and again and again and again and again. And you get to a point where you memorize the text, and you cannot effectively edit when you've memorized your text. And I've right. had it professionally edited by a phenomenal editor, and and but even that, um, you know, we still found a few boo boos here and there because it's. It's 300, well, I guess it's 160 pages in paperback form. It's about 400 pages in Kindle form. And that's just an awful lot of text to make sure every comma, every jot, and every tittle is in exactly its right place. Yeah, you know, and punctuation is one of the things that get me because there's, it's arbitrary in a lot of ways. Different <laughs> people have different opinions on, especially the comma. Yeah, we could have an entire show on talking. Yeah, about yeah, on where on where to put that damn comma? You know, do you, do you put a yeah. comma after the word "and" or not? Yeah, there's, yeah, and in fact, I um, I always thought that you capitalized follow, following a colon, and then I found out when my editor kept saying no caps here. I went back and I looked it up, and you capitalize after a colon in certain circumstances, such as if the words that follow the um, the, the colon are a full sentence. If they're a standalone sentence, you capitalize, and if not, you don't. But then there's also there's ver this very vague rule that Meh, you kind of could go either way on this. And I'm like, well, that's not a rule. That's just, <laughs> you know, that's pretty nebulous. I know. Everybody fears the grammar Nazi. Yeah, well, I am one, and I still, I still struggle. I do too. That's why I think if I do write another book, and I'm, and I'm sure I will, I'm not going to worry about it next time. <laughs> you know, in fact, I'll probably just purposely put in tons of mistakes. You know, that's what cartographers do, right? When they make a map, they purposefully include a mistake so they can tell if somebody's been copying their map. Mm -hmm. And years ago, my goodness, forty years ago, I lived on a street in Portsmouth. Virginia called Arizona Street and it was a little do-nothing street with I guess maybe a dozen houses and it was a dead end because it went out into the marsh well when I looked it up on a Rand McNally map it showed another street I think they called it like Florida Street going off the end of Arizona Street and I realized that was the mistake they buried in the pages of the map because I mean there's no way it went out into a marsh so yeah and I, I do believe that I, I don't know it's hard to find it's hard to find a flawless book, and creating a flawless book is uh, almost a fool's errand. It, it's, I think it's nearly impossible. I agree. So what is the subject matter of this book? Is it about your near-death experience? It is. The title is Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life by Rosemary Thornton. <clears throat> And my website is temporarydeath.com because, again, back to being a word Nazi, a wordsmith, and a grammar Nazi, a little bit of both, people use the word near-death experience to describe what I went through and other people like me. And I, I take exception to that because, in my opinion, a near-death experience is if you're on an airplane and two of the engines flame out and you're plummeting to the earth and the pilot manages to get one of the engines restarted and seconds before you crash right into the ground, he pulls it up and has a safe landing somewhere. That's near death. Mm -hmm. I had no heartbeat, no blood pressure and no vital signs for more than 10 minutes. That is not a near death experience. I was resuscitated with electricity. 
and I was gone for more than 10 minutes. That is a temporary death experience. So my website is temporarydeath.com. <laughs> I like that. I, know, and I actually have thought of that. I'm like, well, near-death experience really isn't what we're talking about. We're talking dying and coming back experience. Yes. You know? or, or like you summed it up really nicely, temporary death. I, yes. I definitely like that. Well, thank you. And that's why I chose that website. One, it was cheap. And two, uh, I, I think it's, I use it frequently in my book. Instead of calling it an NDE, I call it a TDE. And I actually put chapter one up at my website. So if anyone wants to see if they'll like the book, the entirety of chapter one is posted at the website. Right. And that's temporarydeath.com? Temporarydeath.com. Awesome. So... You know, I, I've talked to you before, and, and your 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 story is definitely filled with a lot of trauma. Um, so, do you want to do like a sort of a quick review so people know, you know, who may not have listened to the episode before, uh, what you experienced and what happened? Sure. Well, let's see. How can I how can I make this as short as possible? Well, you don't have to make it short as possible. <laughs> I mean, you know, within the next hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know everyone. The funny thing is I've given I've my story based on what I know. I've reached more than three million people between documentaries and, and videos and all that stuff. So this the story has gone far and wide, which is pretty darn cool. But the, the one thing I would love people to know is even if you even if you end up in hell through no fault of your own. And I'm speaking of an earthly hell being tormented by trauma. There is a way out. And that's the reason I put myself through this torture of writing a book. It doesn't, this doesn't even feel like my story. It feels like I was sent back to share what I learned with others. And I guess, you know, backing up, I, I was a writer. I had some success in writing about the old Kit Holmes from Sears Roebuck. I, my, my first website is searshomes.org. I made it to PBS History Detectives. I was featured on A&E's biography. Not featured, but I was interviewed for it. CBS Sunday Morning News, BBC Radio, NPRs, all things considered. I mean, I really had a good run. Had a lot of publicity and a lot of fun promoting my books on Sears Homes. And then in uh, 2006, I met and married a man that I really thought was the answer to a lifetime of prayers. He was a litigator. He was brilliant. He was funny. He was charming. He was intriguing. And he, like me, was a big history buff. So it really seemed like an ideal match. And I, I truly thought that all those prayers, uh, all those desires to find love, to find what it was like to really be in love were answered in this man. And then after 10 years of marriage, um, one day he came home for lunch and put a bullet in his head. And uh, he left a note blaming me, he actually left a, a forward text message, just said, this is your fault. And it devastated me. And he knew the cops would see it. I mean, he was, this, he was uh, an attorney and he knew how cop things worked. And they did. And I was roundly blamed. I was blamed to the point that I had to leave the area because... Um, uh, people tend to believe things like that. Now, in the bigger picture, I would hope, sadly, this isn't the case, but, you know, I, I am hopeful that when somebody finds out a husband has left behind a note like that for his wife, they would say, mm, you know, that doesn't sound like a really nice guy thing to do. You know, right. his last words, there's no do-overs on that one. So uh, I, <clears throat> between the note and losing my husband and the suicide and the mess, I mean, I was a writer. I was... 
I was already a neurotic writer before this began, and this this really ramped it up. Uh, there's a trauma that goes with losing a husband or a child to suicide that most people can't even wrap their minds around. And unfortunately, sometimes people try when they shouldn't. But yeah, I, um, I lost my mind and not in a figure of speech, but literally. And uh, different people tried to reach out and help me. And I knew I was, I knew I would be dead soon. I just won. I couldn't see myself surviving this. I lost the ability to eat for a while. I started taking drugs. I went to a psychiatrist who prescribed lots of drugs, which I happily took way too many. And I chased them down with whiskey, which is a real bad idea, turns out. And then I um, I couldn't get comfortable anywhere. I certainly wasn't going to be back in that house where he did this thing. So I, for a time, I, I, for a time, first I flitted from house to house trying to find a comfortable place to live. And nobody knew what to do with me. And I'd wake up in the middle of the night screaming. I had recurring nightmares about what he did. And, uh, you know, um, not to be too graphic, but when a man ends his life that way, it's, uh, it's a horrible thing right. visually. So, uh, I, I went from house to house and people tried to help me, but people, but by people, I mean like friends in the community. And, and this was not something that friends can do. I was out of my mind. I would awake in the households in the middle of the night with screaming. I decided to try living in my car because I thought that was a really good solution. And frankly, I was incredibly comfortable in that car. And then a friend on the periphery of my life, her name was Tracy, she found out I was sleeping in the car and she said, we're not doing that. You're coming to my house. And I said, oh, no, you don't. You don't want me at your house. I awaken the household with my screams. We've tried. We've been down this road with others. I'm a mess. I'm lost. Just, you know, you know, there's a term in the automotive world when a car is in a wreck. It's called B-E-R. Are you familiar with that? No. Beyond economical repair. That was the only thing I could think about me was I was beyond economical repair. I didn't see any reason to save me. I was 58 years old. I was out of my mind. I was insane. I just wanted to die. But I, I, the only thing that kept me from killing myself is I didn't want to do to my children what he did to me. And, and that, that held me back a bit, a little bit, but sometimes the pain took me away so this friend i moved in with my friend and she i said look i'm not i'm not doing this but for like one night and so we did it night by night by night and every night she invited me back and that turned into four months and that that kept me because honestly once a woman shoot i was 58 years old once a woman starts living out of her car and i was i was not eating i was living off of benzos and whiskey and wine that's a real fast downward spiral i don't think it would have taken 60 days for me to be dead after that you know yeah so this woman tracy intervened and literally saved my life and then after four months another friend stepped up and he said he would take care of me until i was able to function on my own so he moved in uh we actually shared a home and i rented a three-bedroom two-bath house and we split all the expenses which was an enormous help financially but it was also a help because i couldn't find the energy to make a to make a meal by now i had started eating little bits but I couldn't find the energy to cook. And so he would cook and I, I would say, look, I don't eat dinner. I've eaten, you know, 300 calories today. Don't push me. And he would literally make dinner and then he would follow me around the house and say, please, just, just two bites tonight. Just please eat something tonight, please. So he was another angel that showed up. So 29 months after this, after my husband's suicide, I was kind of sort of starting to live slightly normal again. 
And I was, to the outside world, I looked, I was doing great. But frankly, I had made a detailed plan for how to end my own life. I knew I couldn't, I, I couldn't take this pain anymore. The pain of thinking about what he did. And after his death, I found out he had not honored his marital vows. And that was a knife in my heart. Hmm. So I had made a very detailed plan of how to end my own life. I mean, I had the means, I had the location, I had the, I had every detail. And when I would get depressed, I would think in detail about how good it would feel when I was dead. I just thought, thank God, this will be over soon. And you know, the thing is, when you go to your therapist or their psychologist or whatever, and they say, should I be worried about you? You say, no, 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 I'm fine. <laughs> because you know, if you say one word, they're going to try to stop you. So I knew early on the math was to keep your mouth shut oh, yeah. and make your plan. So they'll, that's where I was. They'll call the police months. and have you hauled off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I knew, I, I mean, I was smart enough to figure that out. So then uh, for 29 months, I had some physical problems and uh, things were not working right. In, I could feel things were off internally. And I went to a gynecologist and they said, uh, you've got cervical cancer. And I said, that cannot be right. There's no way. There's just no way. I mean, what does God have for Rosemary next? Cancer, sure thing. And then I went, to, I was referred immediately to a gynecological oncologist and he looked at me and he said, yeah, it's advanced to a point where your flesh is distorted. So he scheduled a cervical biopsy to figure out, you know, exactly how far this thing had spread and what's going on and all that. So I went in the hospital for the cervical biopsy. And to say I was scared is an understatement. I had never liked doctors and I had never been in the hospital except to birth my three babies. So I was beyond petrified, but I did it. Um, they woke me up. It was uh, it's funny. They said it took 30 minutes to do the biopsy. It took three hours to wake me up from the general anesthesia. So they woke me up and, you know, they say, off you go, time to go home. And I went in the bathroom to go potty and I came back from that. I said, hey, I'm bleeding profusely. They said, no, 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 once you get home and lie down, you'll be fine, fine, fine. And I twice more, I tried to stand up and I mean, I was bleeding. I was losing a tremendous amount of blood. And I told the RN, hey, you know what? Something's gone bad or wrong here. I'm really bleeding a lot. Three times I told her that, three times she was dismissive and said that once I got home, I'd be fine. So off I went. By the time I got home, I had ruined the car seat in my friend's car because I'd soaked through all the pads and everything else between me and the car seat. Went in the house, went right, you know, I had a beautiful house with white carpet. I thought, I don't want to mess up. You know, I, I knew I was dying at this point. I thought, I don't want to mess up the white carpet. It'll be a mess for the kids to clean up. Because, you know, when you're dying, the most important thing is housekeeping. Of course. So... I, I actually made a decision. Frankly, it's very discomforting to see all that blood pouring out of your body. You know, bleeding to death is, is, has been called a painless way to die. But I got to tell you, it provokes a lot of anxiety because you know what's going on. And so I went and I stood in my, I had a nice white tiled walk-in shower. And I went and stood in that shower just trying to avoid making a mess. And standing in that shower, I mean, I didn't even turn the water on. Uh, I could see all that blood running down the center drain. I mean, just coming right out of me, going right down the drain. And I knew I was dying. And I thought, you know, every night, every night I have prayed to God, either heal me or let me die. But don't ask me to live in this hell. And my second prayer was, interestingly, when I die, spare me the life review. 
I had recurring nightmares of watching him put that gun in his mouth. I didn't see him do it, but in my writer brain, I knew what it must have looked like. And I had this nonstop nightmare every night. I lived through that man's suicide every night of my life for 29 months. It was unspeakably hellish. And then my third prayer was um, after his death, there was a lot of legal mess, a lot of awful stuff I had to clean up. And I asked God, please, no more hard decisions. Help me navigate these horrible decisions. Because, you know, the lawyer would say, well, if we do this, then this, 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 and that happen. But if we do this, then this, 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 and this could happen. So you're constantly choosing between two poor outcomes, and you're trying to figure out what is the least poor outcome. So those were my three prayers. Heal me or let me die. No life review. I'm tired of decisions. Please help me, you know, help me with these decisions. So I'm standing in that shower, and I'm thinking, you know, there's a Bible verse. I think it's Corinthians. God will show you the way out. And I thought, you know, what if this dying is God's mercy? What if this is just... A merciful door out of hell and I thought you know that sounds pretty appealing and I thought about that and I thought you know all you got to do is sit down sit down on the shower floor and in five ten minutes it'll be too late when somebody comes to check on you you'll be gone there won't be time to save you then and I really thought about this and then I thought about my buddy Milton who had been the one who lived with me for about two years and I thought about his sister Mabel who had come to help me through the surgery. And they were sitting in my living room right on the other side of this bathroom wall. And I thought, is that really fair to them to have them come in this bathroom and see my body splayed on a white tile floor covered in blood? Is that really a fair thing to do to people who've done nothing but show me love and compassion and tender solicitude? And I thought, golly, I guess it isn't. So then I, um, I did not sit down. I knew once I sat down, I couldn't get back up. But I pushed off against the shower wall and uh, went out and put a towel around myself. Went out in the living room and said, hey, I'm dying. Um, call 911. And they did. Took me to a little standalone ER. They made more mistakes. And uh, I was pretty frightened at that point. And there was a nurse, that, you know, they put you in a little tiny cubicle and there was a doctor at my feet checking things out and a nurse at my left side. And I grabbed the nurse's hand. She was my age. The doctor was about, oh, I don't know, 16. But the nurse was about <laughs> my age, you know, nice seasoned 50 something nurse. And as I tell people, I looked at that doctor real close because I thought she might have play school written on her stethoscope. She was mighty young. <laughs> but that nurse, I grabbed her hand. And I said, promise me you're not going to let me die. And she looked right in my eyes. I mean, kind of leaned over and looked right in my eyes and said, oh, honey, we have many solutions for this. We are not going to let you die. And I was comforted by that because it felt like she meant it. You know, these weren't just words she meant it. So the doctor examined me and she, you know, they, they should have, honestly, they should have put me in a ambulance right then and sent me to a trauma center but they didn't they gave me a shot at allotted which by the way is kind of the worst thing you do for somebody with plunging but blood pressure and then walked out and left me there alone with my buddy milton who's you know sitting on the little stool watching me there and uh he said it didn't take long and uh, my blood pressure they had on one of those blood pressure cuff thingies on a stick that you know automatically checks your blood pressure every few minutes he said he looked up at one point and it said 32 over 25 and he said he knew that you know that was pretty much you're pretty much dead at that point but he said at that moment 
my eyes, which had been shut, popped open. And he was getting up to get the nurse, and he, he leaned over me, and he said, Rose, what do you need? And he said, I looked right through him. He said, I, I tried to sit up on the gurney, which is really impressive for somebody with a blood pressure of 32 over 25. And he said, uh, I couldn't quite sit up, so I reached my arm straight up, you know, right toward the ceiling. And he said, I talked to somebody that only I could see. And he said, and then he said, I flopped back on the gurney and then the blood pressure monitor went to error, which meant it was lower than 32 over 25. And he said, uh, he said, he said, and I think he's right. He said, I think that's when you left for heaven is when I reached up to heaven. Meanwhile, and this is the part everybody wants to hear. They don't care about bleeding to death, suicide, bad dreams. (laughs) They wonder, what's it like when you die? But yeah, meanwhile, I was having the time of my life. I was in something approaching a deep, dreamless, I don't know, just a deep, dreamless, unconscious state. And I woke up at the moment of my death. And by woke up, I meant, I mean, I, I came to awareness being catapulted out of my body. And I mean catapulted. It was like a, I don't know, not even a slingshot, more like a catapult that's been, you know, pulled way back and then is allowed to let loose. And so I, I felt as though, though there was, this sounds weird, but it was like a silvery, sinewy piece of something was from the crown of my head to the heel of my feet. And it's like somebody pulled way back on that silvery piece of sinewy strand and let it pop. And I went catapulting out of that body, floating away into this darkness. And my first thought was, my heart is stopped. And I thought, how do I know that? And I thought, I don't know how I know that, but I know that's right. And then my next thought was, I'm dying. And then being ever the grammar snob, I said, actually, you're not dying. You're dead. Because, you know, when you're going on to your reward, the most important thing is to get your tense right. And... (laughs) I laughed out loud because I thought, that's pretty funny. You're not dying. You're dead. And I heard myself giggle. And that was so cool because I thought, I don't have breath sounds. I'm pretty sure I don't have vocal cords. I don't think I have lungs. And yet I am producing and hearing sound. And I sound just like I've always sounded. There's no change. Oh, boy, that's that's a lot to take in. And I also thought my bizarre goofball sense of humor is still intact. And I realized it was like my whole life I'd been living at 60 amps. And now I the, the, the rheostat had been cranked up to 100,000 amps. It was like all the neurons were firing, except I didn't have a brain. But suddenly I had an awareness and a knowing and a knowledge and a powerful understanding and all the Bible verses I'd spent my lifetime reading again and again, they all, they were all there. My memories were all there. And you know, one of my early thoughts in this experience, in this new, whatever you describe it as, was I got away clean. I, I had thought about killing myself so many times. I had rehearsed mentally how I was going to do it, how it would feel when I ended my life. What a refreshing relief it would be to have my life over and I thought about that and I thought I got away clean I did this I, I, I got out but I didn't do this to myself and I think it's pretty damn incredible that even in death I was thinking about my husband's suicide you know 
Mm-hmm. Even in death, I was thinking, I didn't do to my kids what he did to me. So there were a lot of thoughts that I had. And while I'm, I was floating, floating as soft and gentle as one could ever imagine, like a feather on a summer breeze. And I was in this blackness. It was just the most perfect, all enveloping, velvety, comforting blackness. I couldn't see anything. And yet I knew I was floating. And it was so, it was peace. It was peace as a verb. It was like peace everywhere, infusing me. Every, just peace, 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 peace. And very early on in this experience, I felt the presence of a massive spiritual being. And I mean massive. And he, she was slightly behind me and to my left and way taller than me. And this being said, I said, I said, I felt this being beside me. Again, I'm in blackness. I can't see, but I felt the presence. And I said, literally with a lilt in my voice, because, hey, I'm having a great time and I'm free. I'm free. I, I really felt like I'd been released early for good behavior. I, I can't emphasize that enough. I felt like I'd been granted a pass for this, for, for getting off the rack. You know, mm-hmm. I, the torture, the torture session had ended. I was now in heaven. So. I turned to look at this being, even though I'm in this perfect blackness, and I said, and who are you? And the answer was immediate. And the answer was, you, Rosemary, you are the image and likeness. I'm the original. And I thought, whoa, that's first. That's Genesis 1.27. I thought my whole life I wondered what that really mean. And now I got it because it didn't just come with words. It came with knowing. It came with an understanding of what that meant to be the image and likeness. It meant there's an original. And it was just so incredible. And, and in this experience, it was like everything was happening at once. And yet it was also linear. And yet it was all happening at once. It's, it's so difficult to describe. And one of the things that happened, there's so many things that happened. If you told me I've been gone for two months, I would have believed it. But one of the things that happened was I recognized that I had been in this experience, in this consciousness before. And I thought, I've, I've been here before. What's up with this? And the this time it's a different being. A different being said, remember your mom told you as a baby, as a n- newborn infant, you were given up for dead. And and yet you came back to life. And the, the angelic being or spiritual being said, you weren't almost dead. You crossed over then and you were sent back. And I thought, wow, that explains that ever since Raymond Moody's book came out in, what, 76 or 77, mm-hmm. I, I memorized his book. And then I memorized Daniel Brinkley's book. And then I memorized uh, Betty Eady's book. And I read every single EDE, uh, NDE book I could get my hands on. And I couldn't stop reading them. And I read them till I memorized them. Uh, George Ritchie, Return from Tomorrow. I read them all over and over and over again. And I always thought... Why am I such a weirdo? I hear the angels speak. I see people when they pass. I see and know things that people look at me like I'm insane. And after a while, you learn to shut up. You learn to not tell anybody when you see this stuff. So in this experience, I'm thinking, you know what, angels? That would have been real good to know back in first grade when the other kids used to bully me and laugh at me. Would have been real good to know when my brothers teased me mercilessly. But whatever, I guess it's fine now. So <laughs> this went on and on and on. And I was uh, ultimately taken to uh, actually, I, I don't remember the transition, but one moment I'm floating in this blackness. The next moment I'm in a white room, but now I'm on my feet. 
I'm not floating. I'm standing on, on my feet. And the room is white ceiling, white floors, white walls, white everything. And there are no light fixtures. It's like everything in the room is creating this brilliant white. And I'm now on my feet and I see a door some distance in front of me. I, I don't know, 15, 20 feet in front of me. And there's this very fine mist, like a vapor or a fog everywhere in this room. But I can see through it and I see the door. And I know what that door is. And I think to myself, I've read every NDE account. There's even websites that have NDE accounts. And I would systematically go through and read every NDE account, you know, day by day by day by day. So I see that door and I think I know what that door is. That door is where I cross over. That door is where we say, okay, negotiations are over. We're done. She's going to heaven. And I was like, okay, everybody out of my way. I'm doing the door. We don't need to talk about this. And I remember thinking, I don't know if I have feet or legs, but I bet if I express an, an intention to move toward that door, I will. And I did. I, I, it seemed to be something akin to walking, but I can't really say that it was. Well, as I walked toward this door, that white mist kind of danced around me. It was active. It wasn't just falling. It was actively swirling around me moving around me and I tried to focus on an individual droplet which I know on the face of it seems absurd absurd but I feel like I ought to be able to see an individual droplet of this super fine mist and the spiritual being that was with me said your eyes haven't acclimated to this new experience yet but what you're looking at is a particle of light that's what this is these are tiny little bits of light and they're cleansing you and purifying you and restoring your innate wholeness. And they say, everyone goes, they told me, everyone goes through the white room. And they said, you came to the white room because whether you go on to heaven or whether you go back, you needed to be purified from this, this mental illness, from the physical problems. But they said to take his, his muck, the muck of the world and his muck, you know, the, the blame and all that off of me. It was a cleansing, almost like a spiritual car wash. And and I thought, well, that's really cool. Okay, out of my way, I'm going to heaven. And when I got to the door, um, oh, when I got to the door, I paused. I'm not sure why, but I paused and I put my right, I, I, I actually had my right hand up to push through the door. I was a little miffed that the door was shut because the song Going Home, you remember that it's an old Christian mm -hmm. hymn, Going Home, Going Home, it talks about going through an open door and I thought that door should be open that door should not be shut so I put my right hand up to push through the door pretty interested in the fact that right-handed on earth right-handed in heaven but I asked because now I still have the spiritual being right with me I said is this the divine will for my life and all I could get out was is this divine and before I could even finish the sentence it was answered immediately and the answer was no it's not but whatever you decide, if you decide to go back or you decide to go on to heaven, you go with all of God's love and mercy and grace and blessings and care. And I thought, oh, man, I'll take that deal. And I was like, I'll do the door. And then I had a vision of that nurse, <laughs> that nurse who had shown me such tender solicitude. I had a vision of that nurse sitting on a little metal stool in a hospital supply room surrounded by linens and supplies and such. And she was leaning forward with her head in her hands and sobbing. And I could hear her say through tears, I promised that woman I wasn't going to let her die. And I lost her. 
And I thought, oh, come on, don't do this to me. You know, I, I, I got to go. I can't, I can't go back to earth. I got to go. And, uh, you know, several people said, well, was that happening then? No, I think this was a potential future vision. So I thought, well, you know what? She's an RN. She's getting ready to retire. She'll get over it. She's seen people die before. I'm sure she's promised lots of people they're not going to die and then watch them die. So yeah, she's fine. I'm sure, you know, yeah, I know it's going to hurt, but she'll get over it. And then in the next moment, I didn't see her sobbing. I felt her emotional agony at having lost a patient. And it was, the only best way I can describe it is like it hit me in the solar plexus. It hit me right in center mass of my being. And I, the pain was significant. And I thought to myself, I recognize that pain. That's the pain of grief, regret, despair, guilt, sadness. And I, I thought, if I can spare somebody that much pain, I, I can't do this. So I put my right hand down at my side. And in a millisecond, I was back on that gurney in that body. And one of my first thoughts upon opening my eyes and seeing I was back in that hospital room one of my first thoughts was, hey, uh, Robert's Rules of Order, I, I thought we were in the discussion phase. I didn't know we'd already <laughs> taken a vote. Because it, it, dying is not easy. I mean, we are hardwired to survive. And it had all in all had taken me, I don't know, five to six hours to bleed to death and die. Dying, and I had gone from, I mean, I'd been pretty healthy. And, and something the angels had told me, and honestly, I don't know if they told me this in heaven or if they told me this as soon as I was back in my body griping about being back on earth. But I was told that if in um, agreeing to return to earth, I would re be restored to wholeness. And I was. And I mean, it ultimately, uh, ultimately it, it took a lot of tests and a lot of time, but uh ultimately it was proven that um there wasn't one cell of the cancer left in fact the surgeon it was a follow-up surgery required to affirm this and the surgeon who examined me said your flesh is so pink and pretty and perfect she said i i, I can't believe you ever had cancer so that was a pretty dramatic healing and people love that yeah. part but to me to rosemary the real story here was the restoration of my soul Soon after I was out of the hospital, I was in the hospital for several days. Soon after I was out of the hospital, I was back home. I bought my Bible flopped open to Psalm 23. And I saw, I saw the part, shoot, I don't remember what verse this is, but he restoreth my soul. And that made me sob for about 30 minutes because I thought that's something only God can do. You know, that, that reached a place that nobody else could reach, that love and friends and light and help couldn't reach, that God alone could reach in and restore my soul. And that was the real healing. And, you know, after this, and this is pretty interesting, um, I, I was in the hospital for four days. And, I mean, I actually the next morning after I was in the hospital, the, I got the real doctor, the doctor that was in his 50s. Then that's when I got really good medical care because then I was in a major metropolitan hospital with a trauma center. But the doctor came in and he said, uh, you had a heart attack. And I said, not me. <laughs> I ride my bike. I eat my fruits and veggies. I'm very healthy. He said, no, 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 it was you. He said, you lost so much blood, your heart stopped. And that uh, they knew I had a heart attack based on the eleva elevated enzymes in my blood. And he said, but it's not underlying heart disease because this morning the numbers are already coming back down. But he said, it does show, um, we believe there's probably some damage to your heart. We're going to do some tests to determine how much damage. 
And every time they took me away for a test, I'd say, you know, y'all don't need to do this because the angels were pretty clear. If I agreed to come back, everything would be fine, fine, fine. And at every point in turn, the doctor would say, Mrs. Lawrence, you're, you're a very lucky woman. There's, there's no damage to your heart muscle. You know, there's none of this. There's none of that. And I have since interviewed a couple emergency room nurses and one ER doctor. And they said the odds of a 58-year-old woman, I guess I was 59 then, whatever, 58-year-old woman coming back from that unscathed are pretty small. Because bleeding to death to the point that your heart stops what happens, I found this kind of fascinating, but when you lose that much blood, your arteries and your veins, they get sticky. And so refilling everything becomes problematic. But I mean, there was no lingering nerve damage, nothing. Uh, and you know, the PS to this, the doctors told me that I would need two to three months of convalescence and care because of the catastrophic damage to my body. And I had a friend that was praying with me and he said, oh, we'll see about that. In two weeks, they did more blood tests, and they affirmed that all my numbers were textbook perfect. And the doctor, I remember the doctor looked at those test results and said, ah, they've made a mistake on your blood work. And I said, what's that? And they said, your numbers, they're, they're absolutely perfect. I said, well, you know, I'm back on my bike, riding it again, and I'm back out for my long walks. And the doctor put the paper down and said, I don't know what to say. She said, I have no idea what you're doing. She said, I guess just keep doing it. So the whole thing was pretty darn incredible. And I, one of these ER nurses I interviewed told me this fascinating story. She said they had had a 20-something-year-old male in the ER that had bled to death from some sort of internal injury. And they had successfully resuscitated him. And he died 24 hours later because the damage to his internal organs was such that his body just could no longer support life. And she said that's kind of the more typical story than somebody coming back from this with absolutely no consequences whatsoever. So it's pretty cool. And then after I got back, I sold my, my, all my earthly possessions. I sold my furniture. I gave away my linens. I donated my research materials to a local college. I sold my house, sold in two hours to the neighbor next door. I sold my car back to the dealership. Then I went and bought a slightly used Prius. And then I moved a thousand miles in a little Prius to start a new life. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the Reader's Digest version, if you can believe that. So, so why you? Why do you think they wanted to heal you and bring you back? I got nothing. I got nothing on that. The only thing I can surmise is that when I first came back from this, you know, a lot of people said, oh, write a book, write a book, write a book. And I said, oh, no way, Jose, that ain't happening. And... Uh, you know, one of the PS's, I had mentioned this before, my buddy Milton, you know, after they came in that little ER cubicle and they saw I was dead, you know, they, they shooed him out into the hallway. Well, Milton had been a avowed atheist, very proud atheist. And uh, he said he was out in that hallway thinking, well, what do I do now? She's dead. I just watched her die. What do I do with her dog? What do I do with me? What do I do with her house? What do I do with her stuff? You know? And he said, well, he was just starting to go over all these ruminations he said an angel came to him and said don't worry it's going to be okay we just need her for a few minutes and he was so comforted by this message that he went out to the lobby and bought a soda and this experience i mean this has happened it's almost three years ago this happened this has changed him dramatically 
He now reads the Bible every day. He now sends me little inspirational texts of something he finds in a sermon or in the Bible. So as to why I came back, maybe he was one of the reasons, you know, because this, when an angel appears to an atheist, that's kind of a big deal. And when that, that visitation changes a man, a 65-year-old man forever, that's kind of a big deal. So to answer your question, why me? I really don't know, except I've, uh, I'm a writer. And I mean, what's his name? Even Alexander was a neuroscientist. You know, there's, there's doctors who've come back from this. Maybe it was time for a writer to tell the story, a neurotic, anxiety prone, half crazy, half a bubble off plum, typical writer. I don't know. Hmm. I mean, I know how I've been a, I was a reporter for years and years. I used to write ad copy back in the day. I've written everything a human being can write. I've written nine books. I've written hundreds of articles. I've written for magazines. I've written for every medium you can imagine. So all I can think is I was supposed to tell this story. You know, I heard you reference somebody earlier as the reluctant messenger. Mm -hmm. I feel very much like a reluctant messenger. Hmm. So maybe that's it, the message you were supposed to share it. I, it, I got nothing. That's it, all I got. You know what's interesting, though? After I interviewed you the first time, I would say it was about three or four months later, and I don't remember who it was, told me the exact same thing, that she really? died, she saw a door, there was a mist, she, she woke up back in her body and was healed of her disease. I, I forget who it was. That's gonna, that's gonna drive me crazy, but 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 I remember like when I was interviewing this person, I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, I've heard of this before. No. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Of course that's what happened. Heard, <laughs> I haven't heard that many stories about well, actually after I started sharing this with other people, I started hearing more stories about the white room and the mist. And I thought that was pretty interesting because when I first came back from this, literally when I'm riding in the ambulance to the trauma center, the, the, the major hospital, I remember thinking, you know, I've spent my life reading about near-death experiences and I just had one and this ain't nothing like I thought it would be. And one of the questions I get is, are you doing this for the money? Are you writing a book for the money? Which just cracks me up. Mm -hmm. But I, I tell people, one, I chose not to sue it was two mega hospitals involved in this kerfuffle, kerfuffle. I chose not to sue the two mega hospitals. I chose not to sue the string of medical professionals that made some very unwise choices. If I was in it for the money, don't you think it would have been smarter to sue these people? I mean, talk about an open and shut case. This would have been a doozy. But I chose not to sue them because all I wanted was peace. And litigation is pretty much declaring war on another human being. Yeah. Secondly, if I was going to write a book talking about an NDE and doing it for money, I would have, I know the stories. I know what most people experience. I would have had a more tradition. I would have described something more traditional than floating through the blackness, having a memory lapse, going to a white room. And then, you know, this whole thing is so untraditional in terms of aligning with more common NDE experiences. Possibly. Um, I mean, and I also, didn't see any dead relatives. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's interesting, like, you know, I, I, I've done a lot of NDE episodes, and 
And I've even had like like my experience with that blackness, you know. And I think I mentioned it the last time I talked to you it was like during an epileptic seizure, and mm. and just all of a sudden I was just floating around and it was black and everything was just so cool and it was nice mm. and I, I just totally loved it, you know. And um, and I didn't want to come back, but then I heard my wife yelling at me, mm. and then I woke up in an ambulance and it was like thirty minutes later. And I was like, whoa. Wow. You know, I mean, I wasn't dead, you know. I mean, maybe my brain was off. Well, you know, isn't that interesting? Well, but, but I remember being, and I remember it clear as day. I'll never, ever forget it. It's one of the reasons why I started my podcast, you know, is because being in that space was just like, holy crap, I am not my body. And there's like consciousness outside. It's really, really nice. Yes. Well, and one of the things I love about this is memory goes on. Yeah. I mean, I remembered Bible verses. I remembered so many. One of the things I, I was supposed to start chemotherapy in a handful of days. And I remember thinking, I got out of that, didn't I? You know, mm. I mean, I was so grateful. I was so grateful to be, I mean, I say so grateful to be dead, but there is no death. I was so grateful to have gotten out of all that because I was supposed to have daily radiation for six weeks and chemo once a week for six weeks. And even in death, I remember thinking, I guess we're not doing that, are we? <laughs> I mean, I was, <laughs> it was great. But what I'm saying is memory, uh, memory is completely independent of the brain and health is completely independent of the body and everything we are. Our essence, our nature, our uniqueness, our quirky sense of humor, and our goofy little giggle, all of that is independent of the physical form. And that, to me, is pretty darn dramatic. I mean, we all hear, I've heard people say, oh, there is no death, we go on. But not only is there no death, but every single thing that we are goes with us. And a lot of people talk about the love they experienced. I had the great blessing in my life of having a mother who really loved me. She was a good person. My father, not so much. My mother was wonderful. And so I, I, I mean, I can't say if I felt love, but I felt peace. And I, I cannot talk enough about the peace. But the reason that's so important to me is because as a writer, I've, and my mother struggled with this too. She was always, she was an artist, but she was always very anxious, always had a lot of anxiety. And I struggled with that my whole life. So to experience this perfect peace, it really was just what I wanted and just what I needed. Mm. Did it take some time after the experience to kind of integrate back into living everyday life and kind of accept that type of serenity? Well, I've heard people say that it takes the average NDE or seven years to fully assimilate their experience. And they say, how can you write about this? You're barely, you're not even three years out. Mm -hmm. Well, my point is I spent 58 years assimilating the first experience and, and read, oh, I read, I can't even tell you how many books I've read, but lots and lots and lots. So to answer your question, I, I'm not remembering any more of the experience as time goes on, but I'm understanding more of the experience as time goes on. Yeah, that's what One, I kind of mean. Too. Yeah, and, and I mean, not every day, but boy, I tell you about once a week, I get a little flash of something, some spiritual insight that comes to me as a result of this experience. And I think, wow, I never thought about that before. And one of them, this was very dramatic. So my body was on a gurney, my soul or essence or consciousness, whatever you want to call it, you know, catapulted out onto heaven. 
And I'm told in the white room that if I agree to go back, I'll be completely healed. And by the way, the cancer was gone, which is great. My, my soul's restoration, it was really a big deal. But I had also suffered from some other maladies. Uh, I had an injury to a shoulder. I had a busted right knee. I had some uh, high-frequency hearing loss from too much rock and roll in my youth. When I came back, those things were healed. Those th it was like I got rebooted by the creator. And not only were they healed, they stayed healed. So my point in this is when I had this experience, my body was on the gurney, appearing to be dead to the onlookers. My consciousness or soul is in heaven. I came back with a healed body. But my body never left that gurney, which tells you how much healing happens in consciousness or thought. And oh, yeah. that's still taken me some time to completely wrap my mind around. That body didn't go to heaven. I right. did. Right. Well, maybe matter isn't really doesn't really exist. Maybe it is all just consciousness. I, I kind of I think it that. is actually. I do too. Um Afterwards. And yet I'm not demonstrating it. I'm not mm -hmm. proving it. I have a backache today, a severe backache. That I, I, I was had lunch with a friend and sat in a booth at a little restaurant, and the pain got to me, and I thought, girl, what is wrong with you? You've been to heaven. What are you doing with a backache? You know, <laughs> you know this is all in thought and consciousness. And I thought, I know, but it still hurts. So it's <laughs> part I'm of the still, illusion. <laughs> I am still, I'm still working it out for myself. Um, you you mentioned like like having flashes of insight. Um, have you noticed any increased psychic ability after the experience or better intuition? Uh, I really wish I did, but you know, I I had a lot of that before I left. Uh, and I think I might have gotten a little tweak, but I don't think uh, the answer, I guess the short answer is no. And yet, before my husband's suicide, I had a recurring dream that he had died suddenly and violently and I had to leave my beautiful home. I mean, that dream was just relentless. And before his death, I had, I had, a, dream, had a dream that he wasn't faithful and I confronted him in the dream. I mean... My point is, I was having these dreams before he killed himself. In fact, one day, I was sitting at my desk. I was working on another book. I was sitting at my desk. This was a week before his death. And I was sitting at my desk working on something and getting pretty tired because I, I was writing, you know, 18 hours a day trying to finish up a manuscript. And I had a sensation that my brain had exploded. And it, it was so unnerving. And I wondered, did I have a stroke? You know, what just happened to me? I mean, it literally felt like my, like my brain blew up. And I realize now he was probably at his office wondering what it's going to feel like when I blow my brains out. And I had picked up on that and interpreted it as my own brain exploding. So I had a lot of those experiences before, before wow. his death. And I've, I mean, that's just, that's just life now. I mean, I, I heard the angels. Even as a child, I could hear the angels talk, and I, I wish I could hear them more. But this world, as a friend said to me, this world is very dense. It's very easy for this world to put layers of muck on us, and and you know we. I, I think that's what hurts our psychic abilities. Right, I do too. Any um, any increased desire in helping people heal? 
Oh, absolutely. And, and that's why I wrote this book. Uh, I'm not a therapist. I already get a lot of emails from people who say, who say things that are hard to hear. I mean, by hard to hear, I mean, people have had experiences similar to mine, like my daughter killed herself. I don't know what to do. And I, I don't, I, I realize I kind of have to step back and say, I'm not a therapist, but I understand. And the reason I wrote this book is trying to say, here's how bad things were for me, but here's what heaven is like. And here's how I found peace. So I would love to help others heal. I'm not sure what that looks for me today, for today, Rosemary, that looks like sharing my story in writing with others. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, like, those are definitely the com- some of the common things that I've collected while, you know, interviewing, you know, ND ears is the, um, you know, usually the increased psychic ability, desire to help people, um, Usually, like less fear too. Or do you find that you fear life and fear loss and um, losing and things like that less also? Well, I still struggle with anxiety, and I, I get pretty angry at myself about that. And I ask myself, is this a habit or is this genuine? But I I do struggle with it, um, and, and COVID didn't help. Uh, living alone, being alone during COVID was very intense. In fact, I know oh, yeah, I, think- I actually had a couple people in my world who ended their lives. And I think COVID, if, if we ever step back and look at the numbers of what COVID did to mental health, I think mm-hmm. it's going to be absolutely terrifying. Yeah, I think when, the last time I interviewed you, I think COVID was just starting. Oh, wow. Okay. So so it hadn't really gone into like the complete mayhem Yeah. that it did. Yeah. But I, I do, I think I'm less anxious. I know one of the, one of the miracles of this is the desire to end my life absolutely went away. Mm -hmm. I had been, I had been running out of road on trying to stay alive through human will. I mean, when somebody spends, when their happy place at the end of every day is figuring out, you know, where they're going to get the things they need to end their life, you know, that's, that's not a good place to be. That's that's somebody who's going to ultimately end up killing themselves. Mm-hmm. So that desire to end my life absolutely left, and that's a great blessing. The hatred I had for my husband, the intense white-hot hatred for doing this to me, putting me in this position, that stopped. When I think it, Sometimes I still get pretty angry at him, but now I, I try to say, even if it's only words, I try to say, you know, from now on, I, I'm going to just send you some love and some peace. And I don't even want to think about you anymore. I try to just evict him, you know, evict him from my, my mental space because I can't, I can't fix him. And, you know, one of the things the angels told me, I mean, the angels and I had a lot of discussion about him and what he did. When I asked, where is he now? Is he suffering? I think I want him to be suffering, but no, not really. I loved him. I don't want him to be suffering. So where is he now? And they said, uh, they said a couple of things. They said, he's with us. And I said, okay, but is he suffering? You know, what's going on with him? Do you know what he did? You know what he did to me? And, and what's, what's going on with him? I want to know. I don't want to, I want to know what's going on with him. They said, none of your business. And I said, uh, excuse me, that's rather brusque for angels. And they said, we are to work out our own salvation. His salvation is not for you to work out. And I, I, you know, while that sounds almost like something, an angry mom might say, the fact is it took me out of the loop of ruminating. How could he do this to me? I thought he loved me. 
what happened? How could he do this to me? I thought he loved me. What happened? And they also said, I used to go around saying all the time, I loved him so much, I don't understand. I loved him so much, I don't understand. And they said, stop that. Instead, say, I loved. And they said, when you love, when you just love, you're sending out so much peace and joy and light into the world. You don't have to have a manifestation for that love. But stop saying, I loved him. The real thing you did was you loved, and that sends out blessings to the world. And and th there were so many little things that I had been saying over and over and over and over again. They were very damaging to my psyche. But the angels were very clear and saying, no, 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 change that. Stop saying this. Undo that. So it was quite a thing. Wow. I kind of relate to that, too, because I was having a lot of issues before that seizure. And it was not, I mean, it was suicidal thoughts because, you know, prior to, to that, I had, my parents had died and, and I had moved away from where I grew, you know, lived my whole life and, and then it hurt my back. And I was like really just feeling like crap. And, and it wasn't like even on purpose, but I, like that, that, that pop, that, that, that thought of suicide kept showing up in my head. And it, it was like completely unconscious too. It was like sometimes it was like frustrating, you know. It's like the harder I'd fight with it, the worse it would become. And then after that seizure, it went away. Hmm. You know, isn't it, that interesting? It, it, it like reset whatever was causing that. That uh, I don't know what would we call it, psychosis or something. I don't know what what the word is yeah. for it, but but it was just a, a a horrible repetitive thought that I couldn't get rid of on my own. Yeah, and I've read that that's the, that's the real danger area of suicide is we are biological creatures hardwired for survival. But when we get into that suicide thing, we rewrite those um, basic bio, biological programming. And we, we rewrite it and we overwrite it with, I want to be dead. I can't do this anymore. I want to be dead. We can't, and, and they said, and once you rewrite and overwrite the biological hardwired programming, you're in real trouble mm -hmm. because you've, you've defeated your natural desire for self-preservation. And they said once somebody gets into that place, getting them out of it is extremely difficult. And I, right. I, you know, I, I kind of presented it lighthearted, but the fact is I knew that if I breathed a word about my plan as to what I was going to do, I would be put in a psych ward and uh, I, I, I couldn't have that. I, I, I wanted, I had lost so much. I lost everything a woman can lose in this life. And I, the last thing I had was the freedom to end my own life. So I kept my mouth shut. And in retrospect, you know, I, I don't know if it's the right thing, but I think it was part of the mental illness, frankly. Mm -hmm. You know, don't tell me I can't kill myself. Screw you. Uh, but all that went away, which was a great great feeling and yeah so i am still kind of anxious i still cry the night before i have a dental appointment uh you know I, I still struggle with a lot of things and yet i'm not afraid of death you know i was i heard a hospice nurse give a talk and she says when we get the ndeers in and you know they're in the last days or hours of their life they kind of snap their fingers and say come on let's get this show on the road come on come on come on give, give me a little more morphine please <laughs> That they're not saying, oh, I don't, I'm not ready. They're saying, come on, come on, come on, let's make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always joke and say, like, I don't feel fear, but I will say, I do not like the dentist. 
I think that's a very common phobia. <laughs> but I won't say I fear them. Yeah, well. <laughs> but, but, but I will avoid. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I have a dental routine that's consuming ever bigger chunks of my day to basically, I think, you know, I, I get up, do the dental routine, have breakfast, go do the dental stuff again. And then, you know, I I, I just am afraid my dental routine is getting so big. There's going to be a day I just go from brushing to flossing to water pick to gargling to brushing to floss. I don't think there's going to be any part of my day except the dental routine. And yet, despite all that, I, you know, I still spend some dough at the dentist and I don't like it. I don't like any part of it. But yeah, I still get afraid. I still won't get on a cruise ship. I think I, you know, I think. My relatives came over here on, on the great clipper ships, and I'm, God bless them. But I'm not getting on anything that's out in the ocean. <laughs> so, yeah. And yet I fly. I used to be terrified of flying. Now I hop on airplanes. I'm like, you know what? If we land, I see my daughter. If we don't land, I see my mother. It's a win either way. So <laughs> <laughs> it has shifted things a bit. It, yeah. It's, that's cool. Um, so... Do you plan on doing anything else after the book is out? Are you going to write a second book? Are you going to... Um, I have no plans to write a second book. You, if I was queen of the world, I do have a plan. If I was queen of the world, and I really am hoping that does happen soon, my life dream, not life dream, my <laughs> last five years dream, is to create an organization for women, really, maybe men too, but probably women, who have just found out they lost a sp their spouse or significant other to suicide because... What people don't understand about suicide, when your husband dies by his own hand, the first thing that happens is the cops sit you down in a chair, you know, with the bright lights and ask you a bunch of questions. Where were you when this happened? What was the nature of your last argument with him? So have, have there been many arguments? Was Were there any men involved? There was a reason he did this. We're, we're just trying to figure out, were, were you involved? And that should not be happening. You know, back in the 1970s, if a woman suffered sexual assault, you know, and ended up having the nerve to face her accuser in court. She was asked, well, what were you doing on the road at two in the morning? Why were you wearing those high heels? Don't you think that leather miniskirt was a little too tight? But now we have ad advocacy groups in place for women who are the victims of sexual assault. We desperately need that for women whose husbands kill themselves. Yeah. To get that call that your husband just sat down and blew his brains out, and then the next call is from the cops that say, we need to ask you some questions. Unfricking believable that we are still putting women through that, that we are further traumatizing them with law enforcement. So, yes, my dream is to create one, generate enough money to create an organization that doesn't get doesn't allow a woman to be questioned alone by the cops, but has an advocate present and say, whoa, 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 whoa. That question is not fair. She's in shock. She's not able to respond. Have you noticed she's vomiting repeatedly from the terror of what she just heard? You know, we, we don't have that. And then secondly, I'm in a suicide widows group on Facebook, which those ladies have saved my life because I realize all the things I went through are horrifically typical. But the other thing I would do is create some sort of emergency fund. Often when these men do this, they will wipe out the bank accounts first. And so there are these women that end up with you know four kids and they don't have 20 bucks to buy groceries for the kids and because of the way bureaucracy is structured it can take six weeks for government money to show up to help with feeding the children so i would create an advocacy group and also a group that provides emergent uh, funds 
for women in great need. Do you think that he was wrestling with some type of mental illness? No. No? You think he just did it out of rage? He did it for, let me just say, he did it for reasons that I'm not at liberty to discuss. Mm. I think partly it was a revenge suicide. Uh, About 10% of suicides are revenge suicides. Mm -hmm. And um, that note that he left makes it pretty clear that he was trying to take me out with him. You know, he knew what that note would do. He knew how sensitive I was. Uh, I get, I am sick to death. Uh, That's wrong. Too strong a language. People do tend to hypothesize and theorize. Well, you don't know what it's like to be depressed. He probably just couldn't see any other way out. No, not all suicides are mental illness. They're not. Mm -hmm. Some suicides, there's many reasons for suicides as there are people who do this. I suspect that most of them, not most, many maybe, are mental illness related. But they're not all mental illness related. Right. Yeah, I once, uh, I, I knew a girl, I sort of dated her, I guess, and... She had one boyfriend who shot himself and left a note like about her. And then she had another boyfriend after that who shot himself while he was on the phone with her. Oh, jeez. So. Yeah, that's awful. There, Yeah, that's absolutely awful. I That thing of somebody shooting themselves on the phone, that is not that uncommon but to me that is an act of rage it is a revenge suicide saying wait till you see what this does to you so it's i don't know i people often people ask questions about him and the fact is whatever he wanted people to know he should have bloody well told them rather than you know all this he didn't even leave me the passwords to his paypal account you know there were five thousand things he could have done to make my life one quarter inch simpler and he did none of them so you know whatever uh, whatever reasons he had for doing this if he wanted anybody to know he should have written them written them down right so always write down your passwords it's well, kind of, it's, kind mean, of well, it's kind of funny like like not funny but but my wife has a little book for, with all her passwords and all her information in it in case something happens to her hmm. so I can get into everything that I need to and and I use the same passwords basically for everything and she knows what that is in case something happens to me yeah well that's and that's what thoughtful people do. Um, I, I spent hours on the phone. I mean, this is just one little aside. I spent hours on the phone with PayPal while trying to get his password. They won't give it to me. I sent them death certificates. Uh, the, oh my gosh, copy of the will showing I was the executrix, uh, qualifying certificate from the court. I mean, I sent, I sent them all this and they still wouldn't give me the password. Hmm. So there's just, I don't know, I guess. When people ask me questions about him, I get pretty angry. Because, oh, I'm sorry. 
Oh, it's okay. But he tried, I, I, I do believe, and, and again, was this under the fog of mental illness? I don't know. I do believe that that last message was intended to destroy me, and it almost did. It really did. And as to what, actually, I know why I came back. I do know. I was telling this to a friend today at lunch. I believe that the cancer that I had, it's believed, well, he gave me an STD, which led to cervical cancer. And I think the reason that I was urged to come back was because I really believe in my heart that God was saying he left a wide enough swath of destruction. We're not going to have Rosemary be another fatality of something this man did. So I think that my ending had to be something like old age, you know, or something, something natural and normal, not one more GD fatality from a man who wanted to leave a swath of destruction a mile wide. I think it just, God was just saying, we're not going to let her end this way. Right. Well, I am glad that you returned. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And I am glad that you're writing this book, and I am glad that you are there to help all of these other women that are in similar situations as you. Well, thank you. Because I think that is your purpose. Oh, well, thanks. I hope so. Everyone needs a purpose. Yeah. Except me. I'm a little bit of a drifter, but I'm okay with it. That's that's my purpose. (laughs) All who wander are not lost. I got that on on my uh, tire cover on my Jeep. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it's true. I do, too. Wow. So um, before we wrap this up, well, where can my listeners find you? Or you got your website up, right? Yes, temporarydeath.com. My book should be at Amazon uh, pretty soon. It's Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life. And uh, if you go to my website, temporarydeath.com, there's a little thing there for contact Rose, and that's the best way to reach me. All right. So in the notes of the episode, I will post a link to the website. And when your book comes out, email me, and I will update that with a link to your book. Sweet. All righty. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, you're very welcome. I enjoyed it. Me too. And hang on for one more moment, and I'm just going to play the outro. Okay. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.